Hello everybody, this is John Turney. I just want to come on here real quick and explain something before the episode starts. You will hear me mentioned a couple times in this episode. Unfortunately, through situations out of my control, my computer was not behaving and I was not able to be involved in the conversation. Um, that being said, I was there through the whole conversation and loved it all, just unfortunately was not able to do any speaking myself. The uh, situation has been corrected, and moving forward, I will be in all the episodes. So thank you, and enjoy the upcoming episode. Honest and open question. Finding the heart we have lost. You are listening to the This Is Not Church podcast. Here is John and Nat Turney. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of This Is Not Church. Uh, my name is Nat, and this is my brother, John, and we have with us in the house the estimable um, Bradley Jersak. I still chuckle every time I say Bradley, by the way, because the first time I searched for one of your books, I searched for Brad, and I couldn't find you. <laughs> it was only under Bradley, but Brad Jersak is in the house with us. Uh, let me read his bio to you real quick. If you don't know who Brad is, get to know him, um, but Brad is the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in Canada. He's the author of 20 books, uh, including a novel that he co-wrote with William Paul Young, who's the author of The Shack. And the title of that book is The Pastor, uh, A Crisis. And uh, I have to say, I just finished reading that book this morning and it is phenomenal. It's so good. So you need to check it out. I want to give you my personal bio though, because Brad gave you, or Brad provided me with his professional bio. But let me give you my personal bio. Um, I first became aware of Brad a few years back uh, through Facebook, honestly. So those of you who say that bad things only come out of Facebook, I have proof that that's not entirely true. Um, I became aware of Brad through a mutual Facebook friend um, and was blown away by um, not just his, his mind, you know, his, his mental acumen, um, but his kindness and, and, and the way that he imbues so much of what he believes with love. Uh, for others, love for love for God manifested through love for others. And I just love that it just oozes out of him. And and so I, I find that awesome. I, I've had the chance to meet him a couple of times. We met the first time at the um, Crucified God Conference in near right around Kansas City. And um, also we, we met once in Houston at Don Keithley's church. Um, but my experience with with Brad has always been one where I walk away refreshed. Uh, I walk away usually with my heart full and my mind just buzzing. So that's that's what we're hoping for this morning. Um, so welcome, Brad, to the to the program. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Those are kind words. I must not have been grumpy that day. That's pretty cool. <laughs> have you ever been grumpy? I've never seen you grumpy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Pra- practically demonized till I get my coffee. So Okay, well, you've got your coffee. That's good to see this morning. And and we can make the uh, you know the expected Canadian jokes about well what is it I mean Canadian grumpy is like what I mean, passive aggressive passive yeah. aggressive <laughs> so, well that's awesome man we have a lot we'd love to talk to you about this morning so um, John's over here just catching up he's <laughs> like passive aggressive what um, I, I I just finished reading your book um, and it really was an awesome book and I, I'm holding it up for some reason like we're shooting video but we're not. So, um, and could I just say that, that um, we have an audio version? So this is a, a novella yes. about a pastor in crisis who 
has to face his inner demons in the context of an absolute meltdown, which would you, you could think of as a descent into hell, but it's a purgative or a restorative fire of, of honesty, fearless moral inventory, visitations. And mm. um, if you get a chance, uh, we actually, Paul and I both um, suggest the audiobook because it has a full cast professional actors doing the voices who who go places in their emotions we hadn't even imagined in our minds. And so, you know, an author's imagination limits a story. Sure. And and some of the actors and actresses, I mean, oh my goodness, they left us weeping. And so you can get uh, the audio version, Audible or iTunes, and and um, like it's probably 10 bucks or something, but it, it'll, it'll nuke you. It's really good. That's amazing. I, I can only imagine because, like I said, I, I read it and I got the the full gamut. John has listened to the audio, but the, I wanted to actually I, I I wanted to jump into the pastor for a second because there was a, a a quote that I underlined in my book that really got me because I had not thought of this this way. So I wanted to see if I could get you to expand on this. Um, we're about two thirds of the way through the book um, when the pastor is finally starting to kind of have a breakthrough. And this, this is the quote that I wanted you to expand on. It says, at last, he truly felt what they um, endured with purified empathy, what they felt, not how what they felt made him feel. And that yes. got me. That got yes. me because I, I feel like I'm empathetic. And then after reading that, I'm like, okay, let's talk about what, what purified empathy is. Because now how often have what I felt is more of a, of a reaction to the way that they feel makes me feel. That's right. And you know what? We're we're human. That's just how it is. But I, I think quite often when I think I'm feeling someone else's pain, what it's actually doing is triggering my own. And and um, maybe maybe that's normal. Maybe that's OK, you know, but at some point it has to stop being about me and where I'm really in their shoes. I'm not just um projecting my story and my hurts onto them and then feeling sorry for myself through them. <laughs> right, right. Um, so uh, this, this purified empathy means uh, finally, finally my ego is, is, is not running the show of, of experiencing other people's lives. Uh, I can actually see them as they really are and hear their story as their story. And I suppose those lines in the book, um, are, are not where I've arrived, but they're, they're where I hope to be. And one way I can tell you that this has worked in my own life is that when I have stumbled and fallen and hurt someone, and especially let's say my wife, I will have a very initial strong reaction, emotional reaction, and it will be full of shame. Sometimes it will be like, um, re the repentance of regret or whatever. And then what I noticed is like a whole year later, I begin to actually repent <laughs> and I'm like, well, what was that a year ago? And it was just me being triggered, me being selfish, me being, uh, what, and, and then I'm like, it's, it's only, it's only when I'm past that, that I can, can see the harm I've done in them, not just how it affected me. And that's what that was about. That's awesome. Is that, so is that, it reminded me somewhat of, I read a, a quote by Thomas Merton once, and I'll paraphrase because I don't have the quote in front of me, but essentially it was that when we love somebody, we love all of them. 
Otherwise, we simply love the parts of ourselves we see in them. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, the not just with empathy, but that would be true of uh, infatuation, right? <clears throat> so I think I've, I'm in love with this person. Well, I'm really in love with how they make me feel about me. And, right. and again, that's human. It's okay to feel loved. It's okay to experience um, our belovedness and, and, and that's, that we appreciate those who can help us get there. That's okay. But I, th- there, there's a growing that goes on here, right? In seeing the other, not just through my own lenses and my experience, but in themselves. That's amazing. Awesome. It'd be I, nice I, to get there, wouldn't it? I, it would be. It's, looking it, forward it's definitely to that. aspirational. And it, like I said, I, I've, I'm, a, I'm a pretty avid reader. And that's the first time I've come across something said that way. And it just kind of struck me. But another thing that we had discussed offline before we started was um, I remember when I, when I went to see you when you were speaking at, um, at, at that church in Houston, um, that there was a portion of, of, of a homily, I believe it was, that you had read or chanted. Um, and I got a sense of, um, from the Orthodox perspective, that um, a lot of the theology is just so hopeful. It's just so victorious, you know. So where it's, you know, I've leaned towards the theory of the atonement that lines closer to Christus Victor than certainly penal substitution or anything like that. But I wanted to ask you to, if you could help me to contrast the sense of victoriousness, the sense of victory um, against what we see in some of the, the more mainstream Western church, which is more of a triumphalism, which maybe on the surface seems similar, but to me, there's just a huge gulf. And I don't know exactly if I can explain why. Yeah, there is a huge gulf. So what you're describing is the difference between um, the victory of Christ in his incarnation, death, descent into Hades, and resurrection, through which he destroys death and the fear of death, through which Satan held us in bondage all of our lives. That's Hebrews 2. Right. It's victory. It's the victory of the cross and and what that means for the final outcome. And I would not even call Christus Victor a theory of the atonement anymore. I would just say it's intrinsic to the gospel. In other words, did Christ defeat death or not? He right. did. Okay, that's the gospel then. Um, theories of the atonement are more about how it worked. And um, But prior to any mechanism or transaction or like whatever we think is going on in terms of how Christ's death and resurrection wins, um, we can proclaim this victory. And so that's what Chrysostom's Paschal homily is doing. I think I I'll, I'll, I could read you the two paragraphs that, that yeah, probably you? you heard. And then after that, I'll contrast that to what we could call uh, evangelical and charismatic triumphalism, which is a galaxy away from there. But let's start with the, with the Paschal homily. So it's actually a short homily. It's just four paragraphs, and I'm only going to read two of them. But this will give you a sense of the victory that St. John Chrysostom um, beheld in what we call the Paschal mystery. That is the whole weekend, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Sunday morning, all as one package. And um, when he preached this, those who heard it, roughly 400 AD, said this is so anointed that we need to preach this sermon every Sunday. Uh, Not every Sunday, every year. 
um, at Pascha until the Lord's second coming or his return or however you want to see that. And, and in fact, they have so far. For, so for the last 1,600 years, we've been preaching this every year. And so I'm going to pick it up near the end. Here's the spoiler alert, you know. <laughs> Enjoy ye all the feast of faith. Receive ye all the l- riches of loving kindness. Let no one bewail his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one weep for his iniquities, for pardon has shone forth from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the Savior's death has set us free. He that was held prisoner of it has annihilated it. By descending into hell, he made hell captive. He embittered it when it tasted of his flesh. By the way, embittered means gave it a stomachache, causing it to throw up. So he enters hell. It He gives hell a stomachache and it throws him up in the resurrection. Um, he embittered it when it tasted of his flesh. And Isaiah, foretelling this, cried out. Hell said he was embittered when it encountered thee in the lower regions. It was embittered for it was abolished. It was embittered for it was mocked. It was embittered for it was slain. It was embittered for it was overthrown. It was embittered for it was fettered in chains. It took a body and met God face to face. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took that which was seen and fell upon the unseen. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns. Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ, being risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and dominion unto ages of ages. Amen. So you can see and hear that he's very, um, he, he's, he's rejoicing in the triumph of Christ over Satan, sin, and death. And he's calling people to rejoice with him um, in that victory. So it's certainly, certainly triumphant. And, um, but the triumph all gathers around that work of Christ and, and the decisive victory of Christ over Satan, um, as the gospel of John says, the prince of this world is driven out. That's at the cross, um, over Satan, over sin, which is your sins have been forgiven decisively. This is a, a universal totalizing forgiveness of sin that you can experience, um, but whether you experience it or not or step into that, it's happened. It's a done deal. It's finished. And then over death, and evangelicals have underemphasized this probably, but the, the incredible way that death terrorizes us and the fear of death holds us in bondage and the incredible things we do in denial of death or to avoid death or... To, and. Um, and he's like, death? What are you talking about? That's not a thing anymore. In, or you could say it's been re- renovated from a destination into non-being, from that into a doorway, into eternal life. And so death doesn't scare us anymore, right? So that's the kind of victory you get there. Now, how, maybe, how do you see or hear evangelical triumphalism differently than that? It strikes me as exclusive. It strikes me as um, more, more, more self-congratulatory yeah. than, than, so maybe it's, maybe it's just who the victory is, who's being credited to 
it's it's Christ is victorious versus look at us we have triumphed in the name of Christ it's almost like you know it's it reminds it's it's kind of like Constantine in this name we will conquer and so yeah the yeah idea is now we're taking ground right it's that whole seven mountain dominion thing we're gonna we're taking over local government we're taking over this we're triumphal because you know it, it's more of a bludgeon than anything else and it's it's very much self-congratulatory and it very much is exclusive so it's a victory for some it's triumph for a few but yeah i think of- you're right on you're right on and so uh, let me add another layer to that but i'm going to re- i want to reiterate the one you just said so there is this kind of um christian triumphalism around like dominion theology that we're going to take the mountains right we're going to take Hollywood, we're going to take Washington, we're going to take, 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 which is the grasping of, we're going to be like God. Well, that's Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, Oh, but no, we're going to do it in the name of Jesus. And so that's your, what a great comparison you've made with Constantine. So you end up putting a cross on your shield, but then weaponize it as a bludgeon, right? And become a powerful, rich lobby group, exclusive elite and all of that. I want to add another one then to that. Um, and that would be sometimes in the grace movement, we will take our so-called identity in Christ mm-hmm. and, and just keep rehearsing that as if like people whistling in the dark. And so I am, I am holy knowing that today I have not been holy. Well, I'm declared holy in some heavenly courtroom. So, which has nothing apparently to do with my actual life where I'm getting beaten on. Um, and so I, I, I'm, I feel like there's a kind of triumphalism that is around this identity in Christ language that is just a, a method of, of denial. And it, it's a denial of my existential struggle with human nature and that I am, um, uh, I'm, I'm really uh, denying the human condition and the need right. for mercy on a daily right. basis. So I can't remember what face group we're in a bunch together. So I see, I get as much out of your comments, by the way, on people's Facebook posts as I ever do from your comments or from your own posts that you initiate. So some of this, I just grab because you comment and go, Oh man, that's good. I'm stealing that. Um, but there was a Facebook post in a group that I can't remember um, talking about if I pray, you know, Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Am I now implying that God is retributive? And that I need mercy from a retributive God. And you had some very good answers to that. But also, I want to get your take on that. But also, part of what you said was, um, and I'm again, I'm paraphrasing you, but my identity is not a sinner, but my daily predicament is. Yeah, I just made a new meme of that this morning. I tightened it up a bit. Did you really? Um, That's awesome. I said it this way. Our eternal identity is children. Our daily predicament is sinner. Maturity is discovering our need of today's mercy without shame. And so when I say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, um, that triggers some people because they associate sinner with with piece of shit theology and and total depravity. I'm like, not at all. Um, I feel no shame in saying that because to me, it's simply an acknowledgement that I need to live in God's mercy today. And... And that sinner isn't my identity. It's just like a stubborn fact of what I'm going to be facing today in the dust of this world and the mud puddles I'm going to be stomping in and the way they get my clothing muddy, you know, and and how um, uh, 
so so the triumphalism would say I, I'm not a sinner. It's like, well, you better be, as Father John Bear says. It's because Jesus said, "I didn't come to the righteous; I came to sinners." Right. So if if we think that our status as children, which is true, also means we have no need of living in God's mercy, um, then then I guess I guess we're saying I don't need a savior. Well, mm. sign me up for a savior. Right. <laughs> Me too. And I've wrestled with that a lot because, you know, you, 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 you made reference to the grace movement. Um, uh, one of my friends online has said before he dislikes movements because, you know, they pass, you know, yeah. right? so, um, and I, I'm with him because uh, I've jumped from movement to movement. And I really did. I jumped neck deep into the grace movement, which I, I think every movement starts with some with some cornerstone truths and some good intentions and then gets log jammed in its own institution. Yeah. We set up camp, we plant a flag. This is where we live. Um, and then movements cease to grow. They stop moving. Um, but one of those places we got, we got admired in was, um, this identity thing. So to admit that I am either I'm a sinner by, by predicament or by predilection or whatever, I have a propensity to choose wrongly, um, versus, um, I was born stained with the sin of Adam. Um, yep. Those two things are worlds apart. And I'd like your take on on how that infiltrates and how that informs what we think about this bugaboo called original sin. Um, how do we deal with that in light of, of 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 our identity, our eternal identity? Yeah. So I I guess what I want to say is that we do have an eternal identity, but it is indivisible from my existential reality. I mean, by that life, if your identity is in disconnect with life, then you're a Gnostic. And that's Mm. really, and I'll give you a very tragic version of that. I had to preside over the funeral of a toddler, Mm. open casket. It was brutal. It was like, there's a, you know, here I am at a pulpit. I'm looking down at a little doll, you know, Mm. the whole time. And we get to the, we get to the, um, uh, the the cemetery, and now we're putting we're putting the this little girl in in the grave, and and it, what really broke me was the first shovel full of dirt mm. on the casket. Meanwhile, one of the family members is in full on Pentecostal. Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord! Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Mm. Utter utter disconnect, um, complete emotional, and and you can't blame them. Um, probably in shock, right? But what I just saw there was what's going on here and what, what's coming out of your mouth are from two different worlds. And so um, my my guess was that the guy is in deep peril at that point by being unable to walk through the emotions um, that, that he should be feeling as a human being, uh, so, so I, I see that on in, that's the, that's an extreme version of it. But my point is that, that identity and, um, which is our essence and life, which is our existence to be whole must be one, the truth of our being and the way of our being, um, are, are united in me as a person, unless I fracture my personhood. Right. And so the person who's saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah, and kind of doing the Pentecostal two-step while they're bearing 
a loved one uh, in a, from a tragic death. It, it, to me, there's the problem right there. And right. that's not what Chrysostom is talking about, that's for sure. Um, I suppose where some of this has come, it was an overreaction to identifying a sinner as identity. And that's, right. that's what comes out in Augustine in about 400 that, um, and his doctrine of original sin that you mentioned, that is not a new Testament doctrine. It was not something they conceived of prior to 400. What he was doing there is he's saying, look at, um, based in some mistranslations, uh, of Romans five and a misunderstanding of, of the Psalm where, where, where David says in sin did my mother conceive me. So what he thought and the doctrine of original sin is that you inherit the sin of Adam. You inherit the guilt of Adam from birth so that he called it massa damnata. The mass of humanity is all born damned. So imagine the entire world of humanity being in a cemetery and then Christ comes through and he elects to raise some from the dead right? and not others. Um, later, Kelvin will pick this up in the 1500s as, as double predestination. He's predestined some to life and predestined some to damnation. But, and then of course, uh, and, and then Luther will pick this up with what he called bondage of the will. But here, and this is where you get grace alone. Mm-hmm. grace alone raised you from the dead. You don't raise yourself from the dead, but what's it founded in? The entire grace alone thing is founded in Massa Damnata, that you're starting where everybody in the world is spiritually dead, and now Christ will make some some alive uh, by giving you the gift of faith so you, can, you don't participate. Well, the Eastern Church is like, no, that's just wrong. <laughs> um, Christ raises us and frees us to participate with a reciprocal love response. We love him because he first loved us. We trust him because he first graced us, but it's reciprocal. It's not transactional. It's a real relationship, like a marriage. Right, right. <laughs> so at the cross says, God God says his I do. And, and now in our baptism or whatever we say, we our faith response actually does matter. And it is empowered by grace. But it's also an authentic response of real human beings, which he honors. Amen. No, I love that. That's it's always sort of struck me as odd that um, so many of my some of the people that I know who would um, who would rail against anything that smacks of universalism, um, most of them are universalists. They just believe the world is universally damned. Yeah, yeah, and, that's right. <laughs> and then selectively, so so the you know the sin of Adam was completely efficacious to damn the entire human race for all of time. And somehow um, the second Adam is eh, not quite as strong. That's a really good point. I, I just think you've nailed it on the head there that that needs to be challenged again and again. And so once you do challenge it, then you can use Romans five or first Corinthians 15 to say, whatever it was, there is something that universal that happens from Adam. Sure. It, it's it's not guilt from birth, but it is like we are born mortal because we unplugged as a race from the tree of life, right. and we can we can re- return to the tree of life, which is the cross. But the way Paul puts it is, whatever it is that Adam did to everyone, how Jesus. much more, how much more has Christ undone it and overcome it? And so it's not even like. 
whatever is universal in Adam is universal in Christ, but how much more? And yeah. that's... Uh, when it should be exponentially more. <laughs> exponentially more rather than selectively right. partitive. Yeah. Well, but even 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 Calvinists in their in their double predestination or universalists, whatever whatever's happening is happening without regard to human response. It's just yeah. happening. So so the worst the worst yeah. caricature of universalism is pluralism, right? Which is you know everybody's saved, doesn't matter. Everyone's going to heaven. Do what you want. It'll all sort itself out in the end. And um, I know you don't believe that. I don't believe that. No, um, no. that's heresy. I believe. Um, but there is a a hopeful. Talk to me about 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 how you would how how you would put that in terms. Well, my the I don't like the word universalism because it's such a broad brush, as you've just right. said. That me too. in fact, the dominant view of universalism probably does say sin doesn't matter, Jesus doesn't matter, the cross doesn't matter, there is no judgment, and there's no need for response. That's probably the dominant form today. I'm like, well, that's you've missed five essentials of the gospel. Then, so no, I, I'm not that. But I would say that um, uh, the New Testament sees, the New Testament foresees every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord by means of a recognition of the tragedy of sin, by means of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, by means of his victorious death and resurrection, his descent into Hades and his emptying of its power by means of a final judgment through which we're restored and cleansed, and by means of a willing faith response when the blinders have been taken off our eyes. So so, uh, in that sense, I'm saying, um, will all be saved? Well, I don't know, but what does the New Testament foresee? And I do see at least 30 verses, maybe 40, that seem to indicate that the that both Christ and the apostles foresaw the redemption of all, but only by those means, right? right. And by means of the gospel, and um, and so I I used to like to call myself uh, you know hopeful inclusivist, but people kept thinking that by hopeful I meant wishful or doubtful. Mm-hmm. I don't, and I've said this from the beginning. My hope is an objective hope, and he has a name. It's Jesus, Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness. So when the New Testament talks about hope, it's not talking about something that may or may not happen. It is talking about an outcome that for, that they foresee happening through a means. Right. And so, uh, and now even, you know, like the Lutherans, at least in, in Finland, they would certainly say, yes, there is a it's grace alone, but there is a means of grace. Right. And the means is our participation through, uh, um, even through the Eucharist and through baptism and through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the means of, of that grace comes through and manifests in our lives. So right. I find that interesting that they've made those adjustments through the centuries since Luther. You said something in that sermon in, in Houston um, that you probably don't remember. Uh, it's been a long time. We've slept since then. He, he quotes me. He quotes me from a sermon I've given like five <laughs> or ten years ago. And, oh yeah, I remember that. You remember this, but you said, uh, "Now, now I'm gonna." Oh, you, okay. You, you, the reason I remember it, Brad, is because you're like, "Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this more later," or you said something like, "Like you want to do." I said, "Oh, isn't that interesting?" And then you, you didn't expand upon it. So there's a verse that says that that Christ comes to save all. And I'm paraphrasing again because I stink at memorization. But but anyway, he's 
especially those who believe. Yes. He is the savior. Yeah. He is the savior of all men, people of all people, especially of those who believe. And you said, "Mm, isn't that interesting? And then you moved on. (laughs) And I was like, no, say more about that. So I could do that now, I guess. Say more about that. (laughs) Yeah. So I think what you're seeing there is, is that uh, what Christ did on the cross even most Calvinists now believe this. They'd be called four-point Calvinists. This is Dallas Theological Seminary, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, that they don't believe in limited atonement. They do believe um, that what Christ did, he did for all people. And then, especially those who believe, means that those who believe are experiencing the blessings of what he did. In other words, he's turned the light on for all, and now some of us have opened our eyes. Okay. Um, He's forgiven us all, but some of us know it. And when you know that God loves you and and, and you believe that he's forgiven you, that has an impact in your real life experience. What God has done, his salvation that has has been wrought for all, um, if you don't believe in that, if you think he still hates you or, or, or that you're still unforgiven, you're, you end up still living in in kind of a, the false reality of that sh- the burden of shame that's on you, and so so um, in that sense, I'm I'm just talking about really an objective salvation and then a subjective experience of it, the truth of our salvation, and then um, our our openness to let it touch our lives and and well that what that tells me is then we. That's how we should be preaching the gospel or the good news. Mm. It's not that if you do this, then God will love you and forgive you. And um, no, it's God loves you and he's already forgiven you. Um, Could you believe it? That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, something Richard Rohr likes to say, which is not that we're not lacking God's presence. What we're lacking is an awareness. And I think you could apply that to say salvation is something that we need to be made aware of, not something we need to enact or right. And in being made aware of it, you experience it. This goes way back to um, early 300s. St. Antony the Great, who was a desert father, quintessential desert father, he said it this way, God no more turns from the sinner than the sun ceases to shine for a blind man. Mm. I was trying to remember that quote because I've I've heard that one too. Yeah. So it's like he he shines on all. Right. And, um, And then somehow... The preaching of the gospel, the hearing of it matters because it it ignites this 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 uh, opening of our eyes. So Second Corinthians four, Paul says that the God who said "Let there be light" has now said "Let there be light in our eyes." How? Because through the preaching of reconciliation, that what mm-hmm. Christ has done, He has reconciled you to God. Right. Can you see this? And it's like even in hearing it, you begin to see it and. For some, that's a blinding flash of light, like Paul, and for others, it's a it, you know, it's a a slow healing of our cataracts. But right, um, I had a I had yeah. a similar experience that you um, a breaking. I guess it was a breaking point for me. I was um, I was working at a church in California many years ago, and I was asked to help out with the funeral of a of a young man who'd committed suicide. And the young man I'd known, we went to high school with him, and. Um, Something broke in me, 
as I as I as I tried to talk to the family and as I tried to offer words of comfort, and yet it was conflicting inside of me, my evangelical upbringing, that this person had doomed himself to hell because of the manner of his exit from this life. We couldn't, you know, there was much hand wringing about whether he had accepted Jesus, whether he'd uttered, you know, the sinner's prayer, um, whatever we had decided, and and. I had to come to terms with a God who is at his core love and mercy, um, who would do that to pile pain upon pain, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, remind, I can't remember who it was. It says that if the gospel can't be preached at the gates of Auschwitz, then mm. it's of no use essentially. So, but it, I guess, I guess that's less of a question than a statement, but is that similar to some experiences that you've had as well? I mean, yeah, I, I, I would affirm that, you know, like it, Here's the thing. Romans 8 says, uh, death cannot separate us from the love of God. Can you imagine how unjust it would be to go to the gates of Auschwitz to all those Jews who, you know, who are fried there mm -hmm. in the ovens of Hitler and to say, uh, because you have not become Christians, who, by the way, voted in Hitler. Right. <laughs> you must now go to the same oven afterlife as Hitler will. Mm. So they've already been persecuted as Jews. Then they've been incinerated in worldly ovens. And then because they didn't say the right prayer, they're going to go into the eternal oven of the same one who's, who, you know, and like, hey, and Hitler will say to Anne Frank, hey, what are you doing here? Right. And I mean, I think that's so morally repugnant and obviously unjust that to ascribe that to God would in some way be blasphemy. It would certainly be to, to reject any sense of justice or goodness in the nature of God. But what is actually the fact? Well, what is actually the fact is that he, that he's conquered death so that the Jew who did not know Christ meets him three minutes after their death. Right. will get it. They will, they will say, Oh, I see now you weren't and like, you weren't like um, our oppressors at all. In fact, you're not what we expected, but wow. And then and then Jesus will say, I'm sorry, it's too late. Right. No. If, if you just had this recognition three minutes ago. <laughs> yes. And, 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 and then you just start seeing, okay, so what is the difference before and after? Well, in terms of death, that's been defeated. That's Chrysostom's point. Hmm. Um, Will they, will they still need to respond? Of course they will, but now they can with clear eyes and freed wills. Mm. So I call it a freed will response. Right. That, that all of the blindfolds that the world, the flesh, and the devil has put on us that prevent us from seeing. So again, 2 Corinthians 4, that the God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers so they cannot believe. Right. Well, if they cannot believe, how could God send them into eternal conscious torment? That, that's that's ludicrous. But so it'd be to condemn a blind man for being blind, as right. if that he's morally guilty for that. And so when um, my hope is that that people will experience sight in this life as to the goodness of God, because it affects their real lives. But if they don't. I also believe in the goodness of God who can re remove those blinders at the final judgment. So they see him as clearly as Paul did on the road to Damascus and revelation one, he says two amazing things. One, every eye will see him. Hmm. 
all right, what's going to happen when every eye will see him? And the other thing it says in that chapter is um, that Christ holds the keys of death in Hades. What's so I love mean? letting this question just right. linger. What do you think he'll do with them? Right. If he holds the keys of death in Hades. <laughs> he, well, well, we've just preached it, that he releases the captives. He enters the strong man's house. St- strong man is Hades. He binds him up. And he plunders his goods. He robs the house. <laughs> and uh, But he robs them of what was already his. He's right. taking back those people that have been in held in bondage. So um, I've become, yeah, you could say super hopeful. But again, my hope is is in a person. And it needs to be. That's that's a means of this grace. Right. And that's, that's one of those things that, that I know John and I, I feel bad that John's been you know, sidelined in this conversation. Because I'm. He's. if you've got questions, man, type them and I'll try and ask. But um Two or three things I'd meant to ask you about, you keep, you brought them up, so that's great. Um, w- one thing that struck me years ago was um, talking about the concept of free will, and you mentioned freed will. And uh, being a very, very, very amateur student of René Girard, I look at things like that and say, um, how could your will be truly free? How is anyone? How, how, how can anyone actually claim any kind of autonomy when, when they are beset on all sides by all kinds of things that would hijack that and influence them and things that are not of their own choosing some of their are so to 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 claim that we have some sort of clear choice in front of us and some of us have just chosen correctly um is i, I think it's lunacy you know and it's, yeah and that that is what that is what kelvin and luther were trying to say like you know, with Luther, he said, this is the bondage of the will. But for him, it was absolute. And right. then and then the grace of God is absolute. So what it he he doesn't want there to be any synergy or participation. One thing I'll one thing I'll say about the um some of the conversations I've had the, with with my grace friends. I, I'm a grace guy, but um one of the conversations around it is they're like, look at what percentage of your salvation did you generate? Right. Is it like 1%? <laughs> and um, um, what part of the pie did you make? You didn't make the pie. And and so and to that, I would say you're absolutely right, but you still got to eat the damn pie. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so there is a partaking of the body and blood of Christ. There is right. a partaking by faith of the salvation that was completely generated by him. And so participation is a, is a very central aspect of Eastern theology. And, and what Augustine would look at and go, oh, you're Pelagians and you're saying it's partly by works. And we're like, no, it's participation in the works of Christ. It's right. participation in the grace of God and that it's a willing participation. But somehow we do need to be freed and that the gospel does that. Yeah. So... Um, why preach the gospel? It's like to free people to be agents who can participate. Right, you know? right. I remember having that. We all we all get these questions anytime we ever even hint at, you know, some sort of hope that God will save most, if not all, people. Then why bother with the gospel? Then why bother with Jesus? And I wonder if they've ever met Jesus. Then, yeah, I would. I I I have two answers to that, and that's one of them. It's like why why share Jesus? Have you not met him? Right. He's the best thing that's ever happened to me. And second, do you not know how that people are perishing? I mean, not someday. I mean, now, now it's really hard for people. They're they're feeling desperate and broken and bereft. Um, 
those who do don't yep it's tougher for them to come into the kingdom of god because they don't see a need but my goodness once you start listening to people's stories like how could you know jesus and then not share him with them if they're like i'm looking for hope right. and there is no hope it's like i might know some <laughs> um right. but i have a i i'm very suspicious that some of those folks don't share their hope because they haven't experienced it themselves or they've boiled it down to some kind of apologetics argument that they're right. not sure they can win in the moment. And I'm like, well, okay, we may need to start by evangelizing the church then. Amen to that. No, that's very true. Um, you mentioned participation and I know we're, we're at about our five minute warning. So I'm just, I, I want to put this bug in your ear though, because I'm going to talk to Thomas uh, Ord next week and his, uh, I'm not sure if you've had occasion to look at one of his books. Uh, he's, uh, oh, yes. Um, so the uncontrolling love of God and then God can't. And one of his, I guess one of his central themes is this this idea that love doesn't control and that love requires participation. And so yes. I, I really can't wait to talk to him about that. Um, but even within the construct of salvation, um, our willing participation in that, where did we get the idea, you know, besides you know, maybe a verse or two taken out of scripture that you know, this physical life is the chance. And once you close your eyes in this world, it's done. Like God will not continue to pursue you beyond your last breath. Yeah, we would have used, I'm saying we, this is my people. This is what I was. Right. This is what I Me preached. Too. And um, so we would have used the scripture that says, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. Well, so we took that as, that death is a deadline. And after that, there's, there's no hope. You just either go to eternal life or eternal damnation. And, and then we would have also used some of Jesus gospel parables where the door is shut or locked and that's it. Um, where you're excluded and sent to utter darkness and where even like the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he is, he's crying out for mercy from the flames and, and Abraham saying, well, sorry, it's, it's too late, you know, so, um, so you do have those kind of texts. What I don't want to do is negate them. So a lot of my friends who lean universalists, they, they dismiss those texts way too easily. I do see them as dire warnings. I also just don't see them as the final word. Mm. Um, mercy triumphs over judgment. So like David Bentley Hart, for example, I would, I would pull the same move and say, Take all of those judgment texts, the exclusion texts, the take them very seriously because they're describing something real, but they are penultimate, which means second last. Mm. Um, and then, and, and they apply to the age to come or the threshold of the age to come. So we live in this present evil age. We enter the age to come, which is an age of judgment. I don't know if it if we'll experience it as a moment or ages upon ages. Uh, but that's where I, that that's where we will have to face the meaning of our lives and, and that the wood, hay and stubble of our false selves right. will be burned up right. and the refiner's fire will purge us of dross and cleanse us and purify us and restore us. After which we have the end of the ages, first Corinthians 15, when every enemy is defeated, Christ is, victorious evil is gone completely and the lord hands over the king his kingdom to to our god and father and then paul says and and god will be all and in all mm -hmm. so so there is th these uh 
I, I don't want to I don't want to dismiss those judgment passages because they describe the tragedy of turning away from love mm. in stark and you don't get to choose the consequences of your turning. And I, I think the gospel is about returning. Come back from the pig pen to the father's house. You're always welcome. The gate is not shut. And the gates will never be shut, uh, according to Revelation 21 and 22. But but why, you know, it's a quality of life thing. And I, I'm just, I am a bit worried about a kind of message that says, don't worry about that. It's like, right. no, no, pay close attention. You only get to live this life. And when you hand it over, are you going to want to be those who weep and wail and gnash their teeth at wasting an entire life when that's the only gift you have to give to God at the end, right. you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's definitely a quality yeah. of life issue. And I, 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 I weep for those who don't see beyond that, you know, who, who, who have relegated this life to just the way station before we get to where we're really going. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then, you know, I, I believe what you said is true that the weeping and gnashing will be for a life that was not well spent. Yes. You know? And then, and then, and he then, will wipe every tear from their right, eyes, exactly, right? So there's exactly. a, a last word and a word after that, as McLaren would say. Ah, McLaren. That's a guy I got to get on the show. I love yeah. that guy. Um, man, I tell you what, I, I love it. Um, if if you've still hung with us, I appreciate it. Um, you need to read Brad's books, man. A More Christ-like God um, honestly re- virtually rescued my shipwrecked faith. So for that, sir, I, I am grateful. Will forever be grateful. Oh, I'm glad. Um, it's uh, about a more Christ-like way, a more Christ-like word. Um, pastor, co-written with uh, with Paul Young. Um, I have Can You Hear Me Now on my desk as well right here. Um, so I pick up a book, read it, um, get to know um, this message that is just so chock full of hope, that is so chock full of light. Um, that I just don't think you can read it and walk away unchanged. So. We appreciate you being here, brother. They can get it, hold of you, I'm sure, through all your social media platforms. Yeah, Instagram, Facebook, Facebook Twitter, Twitter yeah. TikTok. Any, uh, no TikToks. Make, you should yeah, do some no. TikToks. You and, and John Piper's kid could do some TikToks together. <laughs> oh, okay, maybe not. Um, yeah. Have you seen his TikToks? Oh, yeah. yeah. Dude, they're, they're, and they're biting. They're awesome. Ouch. But, oh, jeez. But uh, anyway, so look at, check him out on, on all those platforms. Um, watch for good things to come from him. Hopefully we'll have you back at some point. I'd like to have you back on with Paul one day. That'd be talk fun. About, talk about the pastor. Um, yeah. Just what that, how much that can mean to some folks. But I know he would do that. Yeah, we like doing that. It's fun. Well, let's uh, let's let's get that on the books and I'll, I'll, I'll reach out to you offline and we'll, we'll see if we can get something scheduled. That would be amazing. All right. Bless you guys. All right. God bless you, man. Have fun. Have a good day. Ciao.